The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Another five-minute mystery. See if you can solve the case before the end of the program. Well, Alice, one more block and you'll behold the Brooks household. Two whole years, Jim. It just doesn't seem possible it's been so long. You and Dorothy married and with a place of your own? Ah, it's true, all right. Only too bad you haven't taken advantage of the old Brooks hospitality sooner. Well, I'm here now, and I intend on having a perfectly wonderful time. Now, here we are. Oh, what a charming place this is. Dorothy's probably on needles and pins waiting for me to get you here. Darling, it's Jim. Here's Alice. (gasps) Jim, look! What? Where? There, on the living room floor. It's Dorothy, dead. Mr. Brooks, I'm afraid you and Miss Manning will have to submit to some routine questions. I'll be happy to help in any way I can, Inspector. Thank you, Miss Manning. Now, Mr. Brooks, while we're waiting for some information I phoned for, I want you to tell me exactly what happened this morning. Well, there's nothing much to tell. Both my wife and I were quite excited, expecting Alice, that is, Miss Miss Manning here, to visit us from Chicago. I was to wait until she called me at the office. And you were there all morning? Yes, until Miss Manning's train arrived and we came out here. I had written Mrs. Brooks to tell her that I would call Jim at the office as soon as I arrived. The train was an hour late. Maybe if I had been here earlier, it may have been prevented. Hmm, well, that remains to be seen. Apparently, Miss Brooks was sitting here in this chair putting red polish on her fingernails when she was shot from behind. The polish had spilled all over the carpet, and she was still holding the tiny brush in her hand. She must have recognized her attacker, and since she did not die instantly, she printed these three initials here on the floor with the polish. D-O-C. D-O-C? I wish we could tell whose initials she was trying to reveal. Yeah, sure? You don't know anyone whose name would fit that? Positive. I can't. Oh, oh. Yes, Miss Manning, can you think of somebody with those initials? Well, I, I... D-O-C spells Doc, and it's Mr. Brooks's nickname. Why, it can't be. Yes, Mr. Brooks. I haven't been called Doc in over two years. It was a nickname I picked up in school. My wife didn't like the name and never used it. No one in New York even knows me by Doc. I've, you've got to believe me, Inspector. It's the truth. Hmm, well, that we'll see. Just a minute. Hello? Yes, Grady? Yes. I see. Well, it's sewed up anyway. Thanks. Well, you both will be happy to know our little murder is solved. Oh, then then it wasn't Doc after all? 
No, Miss Manning, it wasn't, Doc. I'm arresting you, Miss Manning, for the murder of Dorothy Brooks. Why did the inspector arrest Miss Manning for the murder of Mrs. Brooks? In a moment, we'll hear. And now, back to our story. How dare you arrest me? I was still on the train. Your train wasn't late, Miss Manning. That phone call just verified the fact. You came out here, murdered Miss Brooks, returned to the station, and called Mr. Brooks to pick you up. That wasn't what really gave you away, though, Miss Manning. Too bad you didn't know Mr. Brooks was no longer called Doc when you printed those letters on the carpet. The next time you leave a name as a clue to throw suspicion, you'd better get the name right. But of course, there won't be a next time, will there, Miss Manning? Join us again next time for another chance to solve a five-minute mystery. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is Professor of Egyptian Art and Architecture at UCLA and uh, a prolific writer with a new book called The Good King's Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. Her name is Kara uh, Cooney, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Kara. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I should say welcome back, because I think... And, and I was looking at the titles of your previous books, and I I knew we talked about women ruling Egypt, and I can't remember if it was When Rim, Women Ruled the World or your other book, The Woman Who Would Be King. But I know you've been on the show before, and, and we talked about that. But this time, you're looking at not women. Yeah, I, I'm looking at not women, but I am looking at women, because I'm looking at patriarchal systems in ancient Egypt and in our world today, and I'm asking what they do, how they work, how old they are, how they cloak themselves and make themselves seem so good, and what the future path for for humanity might be. You know, for the last 20 years or so, I've heard people talking about women in traditionally men's jobs. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that's that's changing, you know, in the last few years. But when you have researched these leaders and, and pharaohs and kings and so on from ancient Egypt and, and so on, does it tell us anything about how women have risen to power in the past and and I was thinking about women like Margaret Thatcher and Indira Gandhi um, that are certainly more contemporary but thought of as uh, being in charge at a time when typically men held those positions. Yeah and I think Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher are great comparisons to the female kings of Egypt women like Hatshepsut or Nefru Sobek or Tawasret, because each of these women is ruling within a patriarchal system and holding the regime together very much on behalf of a male-dominated system. And Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher in particular, they're both voted in by a parliament. It's not a direct election, and they're there as the, the one woman in a man's game, 
but they're very much propping up the old system very conservatively. And I would argue that the women in the Egyptian story do the same. And after getting through that book, When Women Ruled the World, by the end, I'm like, well, this is a tragedy. It's not female rule that changes a system in any real way. The women don't mold the system to themselves. They have to mold the, they, they have to become what the system needs. And the, it's, one, it's a way of linking one authoritarian to another. And so many of these women, we can't pronounce their names, particularly women like Hatshepsut, because their histories are erased after their utility is gone. So um, it's, it's an interesting thing that we don't really divinize these women. We, we demonize them, and, uh, and yet they're useful in the moment. So I, I don't think that going forward, voting a woman into office, if that's your perspective, I don't think it necessarily changes anything. I think it depends on the perspective and, and ruling style of, of the person. What about the rule um, under these women when they served in these various capacities? Did things run differently, or did they just become sort of placeholders for the next man to hold the job? It depends on the woman, and women are generally not allowed into office unless there's a crisis of some kind. There's no man available, and if there's no man available, something's gone wrong, (laughs) and that means that the woman has to rule in a different way. So, for example... Like Hatshepsut, she's in the 18th dynasty and ruling on behalf of her nephew who is too young to rule on his own, um, who may have even have taken the throne at the age of three or two, very, very young. Does she rule differently? She has to because of that. She's ruling alongside a male entity who will become older and more powerful as the years go on. So she's always going to be ruling very traditionally, very defensively. Then there's somebody else like Cleopatra, who's a Macedonian Greek, to be sure, but is ruling within an Egyptian system. And she's ruling in a very different Egypt, an Egypt perched on the edge of the Mediterranean. And her rule is more bold and more aggressive. And she's playing that man's game. She's engaging in battles. She's engaging in all kinds of dynastic competition. And the cool thing about about Cleopatra is how much of a man's game she actually plays. She even uses two Roman warlords almost as sperm donors because she doesn't marry either of them and sets up the children she has with those two men. Those would be Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. You don't even need me to tell you the story is so well known. She sets those children up as recipients of her dynastic glory. Uh, And um, if it weren't for that, that battle of Actium, we might talk about Cleopatra a little bit differently. Of course, if she'd been a success, maybe we would have had to forget about her. The only reason we remember her is because she's a failure. She's good to keep in our cultural memory for that reason. That's that's interesting because normally, I mean, common sense would say we remember the good kings. Mm-hmm. And, and not the ones who failed or did poorly. I suppose Napoleon is an exception to that. But there are um, tons of exceptions. Like think of Hitler, right? Well, of course. <laughs> and no one, does, everyone knows who Hitler is. A, a fantastic, punctuated equilibrium moment of a grasp of power and a fire that burned so hot it burned itself out. 
there are many rulers like that. And yet when it's a man, we treat, a, we treat them differently than if it's a woman. But, but in the latest book that I just wrote, the, the Good Kings, you know, that title is a sly title. It's really hitting upon how the ancient Egyptians packaged authoritarian power arguably better than anyone else on the planet at any other time, making it seem not only necessary, but moral and good. These were, these were the good fathers doing what we needed. And they, that, this advertising campaign of pyramids and coffins and temples was so successful, it lasted for over 3,000 years. It is amazing, and I wonder about that title. I was going to ask you about the title, The Good Kings, because, um, you know, the the American experience is we don't like kings. Yeah, <laughs> and the Egyptian experience is they do like kings if if they're good. The American experience is very Roman. We say we don't have kings, and yet we do. The Romans said they didn't have kings either, and yet they did. They just called them Caesar or Augustus. We don't have kings. We just call him a billionaire worth 300 billion, like Jeff Bezos. You know, we, <laughs> what's, what's your king? Um, I give a talk on, on this book, and I have a slide that says, so you think you don't have a king. Um, so you think you live in a republic or in a democracy. And I would say that that, that ideology of the democracy, that's our ideology, so that we can't even see the regime that we live under a minority rule in which the corporations write the laws and the lobbyists run the show and the money, it's a pay-for-play oligarchic scheme. It's, it's much more that than it is a representative democracy or a republic. And that's, that's where, what I'm getting at with this book. I'm using Egypt to shock. Because it's so separate and different to our eyes, we can see it more clearly. And when we look at ourselves, we're all swimming in that water. We can't see the ideology where it stops and starts. So I'm using Egypt because the crooks and flails and the crowns and the things seem so different to get you to see what a suit and tie might, might communicate, what, what it means when you, when you hug a flag, <laughs> the American flag, what a jet flyover means. And I'm trying to get that ideology to be more visible to our eye and less part of our everyday living fabric. Red tie, blue tie. Yeah. <laughs> Rinse and repeat. More with author Kara Cooney from UCLA about the Good Kings. Straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com the Time Summer Program dot com. The Time Summer Program From the Time Summer Mistress of the Dark with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annanick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. Hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author Kara Cooney from UCLA about the Good Kings. Straight ahead. In researching this book, how did you decide who you wanted to identify as examples of absolute power in ancient Egypt? That was pretty easy because I chose those kings that were at the top of their game, the most centralized, the building the most stuff. And it's when the wave is at the top that it crests. So, and it's also at the top of the game when you think it'll go on forever. I'm sure everyone living in 1980s America under Reagan thought, well, this is awesome. It'll just go on forever. And it's at that time when the seeds of its future destruction are being sown. You don't see it, you don't know it, but the repercussions are there. And going through each of these kings, Khufu, Samwaser III, Akhenaten, Ramses II, and Taharqa, each of them is at the top of their game. And each of them, right after their reign, sometimes even during their reign, that wave will crest. And, and all of the, the things that were hoarded, the, the digging too deep, the taking too much, the pushing too far... All of those things will have a repayment demanded, and there will be a, a collapse after in, in each case. So I, I just picked those guys at the top of the, the bell curve, if you like. How, how were kings, um, how did they ascend to power? We don't know, and isn't that the coolest thing ever? <laughs> it, it depends on the time periods, but the Egyptians cloaked that very strategically and cleverly. It is not clear if a king was picked because he was the oldest of the sons, or maybe he was picked because he was the best warrior of the sons, or he was of the right mother, because every king had more than one wife, and some kings had hundreds of wives. So maybe it was the right family. The, the dynamics and the, the strategies for how a king was chosen and what the mechanisms were they're very complicated. And to get around that, the Egyptians just say, well, this is the king the gods chose. And at some periods of time, particularly in the 18th dynasty, when Akhenaten was ruling, they say that the oracle of the god chose the king, that they would bring a statue of the god held aloft in the priest's arms into a temple where there was a choice to be made amongst princes, and that the god chose which one. I'm sure they had an agreement which one it was he was meant to be choosing in advance. But... It, they, they give it to, it's like kind of like, I, and I use this phrase, a let Jesus take the wheel sort of moment in which it, it's useful for people to say, I didn't do it. Did you make the decision? I didn't make the decision. They're like, <laughs> God made the decision. Because that's, that's an easier way of saying it's not my responsibility and yet having it the way that the people in, in power want it to be. It's like the line in the, uh, in the Monty Python uh, Holy Grail movie when <laughs> the the peasant says to King Arthur, well, how'd you get to be king? I didn't vote for you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And as we, as we live in an end-stage democracy, arguably, you know, as we try to limit votes, and voting does matter, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't limit it in certain states, it's, it's an interesting time to see how... Um, how, do we live in a democracy or not? Are we majority ruled or not? Um, how different are we from this this elite-driven authoritarianism of ancient Egypt? 
I'm arguing we're not that different, and I'm arguing that we we will have a fall too, and I'm arguing that 250 years is nothing. You know, that's why I'm taking this big swath of time. That's the gift of ancient Egypt. It gives us this 3,000 years of ups and downs and ups and downs, and we're trying to prognosticate where we will go. And I think everyone agrees, right and left agrees, that we are walking into a fire. And we don't know what that means, but we feel the change coming. And half of us are saying we need to go back. We need to make America great again. We need to go back to what we had. We need a new normal. The other people are saying, no, we have to make something different. What? We don't know. And, and there is great disagreement in, in this country. And that's where we're different from Egypt this time. Egypt remade itself again and again into the same. Rinse and repeat, bigger each time, more complicated each time, with a bigger collapse and a bigger reconstitution of power. What we're going through is different because the patriarchy has gotten us this far, um, 10,000 years at most in California where I live, 300 years, you know, of, of patriarchal systems. And it's caused great damage to the earth in the short time of, of patriarchy working for humans. And I think its, its end stages are with us. And we're all deciding how we get to post-patriarchy and what does that mean and who gets to rule and how does it work. And I'm not surprised that authoritarianism is rising all around the globe at exactly this time because it's right before the armistice is signed that all the bombs are falling the most, right? So it's right before there's a shift that those in power are going to try to use every last trick in the book that they've got to hold on to power. And, and these are the things we're seeing in this country, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, everywhere, everywhere. In the, in the West, we judge all fiefdoms by the British monarchy. And we understand a little bit about how the selection is made within a family and and even a little bit about how when there's no heir to pass on, how it shifts from one house to another house and begins a new, uh, uh, I don't even know, reign, I guess, uh, with... with um, a, a different family, but then goes back to the same sort of thing. It's it's amazing to me that we don't know very much about how these kings were selected and on on what authority they based their power. It's exactly as the kings want it to be. It's the same as you and I not knowing how the Great Pyramid was built. That's exactly how the Egyptians want it to be. These are state secrets. This ideology is Egypt's hydrogen bomb, if you like. We don't give out our recipe for the hydrogen bomb. We don't let that blueprint go out. Well, the ancient Egyptians didn't let the blueprint for the Great Pyramid go out any more than they let you see the realpolitik behind the scenes. Everything needs to be encrusted in a perfected, God-given ideology. And so they're telling you that these things just happened miraculously. There was no, there's no humans behind the building of the Great Pyramid. There's no, there's no machinations behind the choice of the king, that God chose him. That's the fiction that the Egyptians have presented so well. And, 
I think this book, The Good Kings, is one of the first popular criticisms of that Egyptological positivism. That we're always looking, we Egyptologists are like, look at this beautiful thing, look at this shiny thing, look at how powerful they were. And we're never asking, but where did it come from? How did they get it? How do they maintain it? And that's what I'm trying to get at in this book. What makes you ask the questions, Kara, when you learn time and time again that there are no answers? <laughs> um, sometimes I think there are answers because what I'm, if I've got a bunch of authoritarians who are giving me their alternative facts, which is what is happening, right? If I know that that's what they're doing. And finally, I'm like, I'm not taking them at their word. This is what Ramses II says happened at the Battle of Kadesh. I'm not asking what actually happened at the Battle of Kadesh. Because without a time machine, I will never know. But so are there ways to, to weigh and balance different accounts of the same events to... We've tried that. You can try it. You can take the Hittite version. You can take the Egyptian version. Both of them are playing the same game. Both of them are saying, I won. So, so <laughs> for me, and this is what I teach my grad students at UCLA, you, can ask, you can't ask whatever research questions you want. And you can waste a lot of time trying to figure out what actually happened in history when really it doesn't really matter. It's a bunch of strong men using their power to, to claim that they have more power than they do, um, to, to write a perfected story and to keep grabbing more power until there's a collapse and then it happens again. It's, it's all the same story. So what I would rather know is, and the more interesting question for me that I'm asking in this, is if that's the case, how do we let it go on and on? How do we let it happen repeatedly so that we're the ones exploited and we're the ones that don't have any choice or power or wealth or riches and and, and we have this extraordinary social inequality. How is this terrible to us? How do they pull the wool over our eyes again and again? That's where, where I need and want to go, because authoritarianism is on the rise. Even though we're talking about labor issues and social inequality and racism and all of these issues that are endemic to our own society, there seems a great fear and an interest in going back and to go back and keep minority rule, or blatantly to keep white power in the United States, there seems to be a very great interest in arming up, getting your AR-15, and getting your authoritarian of choice, rewriting the laws, creating some gerrymandered realities, and continuing uh, the system as it works for you. That will work short term. It is working short term for strong men in power, in the United States, um, and strong women. And yet it's, it's got some unintended consequences that are already making themselves felt. And that's the fire that we find ourselves in in the United uh, States today. Are you, are you concluding, Kira, that um, this is sort of the um, global historical version of we've always done it that way? Yes, it is, and we're the same as the Egyptians. It's, this is my attempt of taking some modern exceptionalism away, if the pandemic hasn't already done that for you. 
to try to shake everyone up and say, we are just like these Egyptians. We are doing the same thing that they did, and we're trying to rebuild it bigger again. The difference this time is that our earth is not going to let this. It's not going to happen with wildfires and flooding and heat. Um, there, there are only so many times that, that the amount of damage that this system of rinse and repeat collapse, build big, collapse, and then rebuild bigger. Um, there's only so much damage that this earth and our people who live upon it and need it can take. And so that's the conversation that, that many of us are having now. How can a forest only be a value when it's cut down and made into lumber? But that's the economic reality that we live in, an economic reality that's based on growth, that only can survive on growth. Um, what, what else can we, what can we build that will help us to not destroy this planet and to create some, some you know, more than two or three generations um, for humanity out of it? This is where humans don't like to change. They really don't. And for the last 10,000 years, we have very much done the same thing and rebuilt it bigger each time, thinking that we are the stewards and the leaders of this planet. And we're now reaching an end capacity of running out of resources and space. And it's, now it's going to be a tension between that old way that we, that we know so well and that we just want to go back to <laughs> and what could potentially come out of it, um, something new that, that is a post-patriarchal reality that needs to be built. And there aren't examples offered in Egyptian history where, um, where there was a collapse, a fall of an empire, and something better took it pl its place? Or did people just say, okay, we got a new guy, but we want the old way? Each time there is a collapse, and there are collapses, and there are new and, and innovative ways of humans creating new social systems after that collapse, but they're always temporary. They always got steamrolled by the next strong man to grab all the resources and, and pull it all to himself, and everyone's like, okay, I guess we're back in this now. And that strong man would build beautiful things and temples and colossal statues, and people would be like, okay, he is our God, you know, it's God-given, and there it is. It, it, this, this is, I have a saying in the book that we need to forget what we think we know and remember what we have forgotten. And what I mean by that is history is very long, and it's even longer than the Egyptian civilization of 5,000 years ago. It's, it's a, a human history that goes back 200,000 years. Patriarchy is new. It's, it's something that has not characterized the human species. There was another way of living before, and I feel that we're on the cusp of a new revolution, if we've been through the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the sexual revolution. Now is a, a time to create a post-patriarchal revolution and live maybe more like hunter-gatherers who lived in, in uh, cooperation with the earth in a sustainable way. I'm not trying to mythologize or glorify hunter-gatherer peoples, and I'm not saying we can go back, but there is a way with all of our technology and our new ways of living 
to create something that has never been created before. You know, when, when human beings were there as hunter-gatherers and the agricultural revolution came along, it was also a time of great stress and messiness and complications as humanity moved from one way of living to another. And they didn't do it en masse. They did it all different times and all different ways around the world. Well, it seems this time in a globalized earth that we're more united than we've ever been. And it seems like we're all in trouble at the same time <laughs> because the earth is the carrying capacity that it is. And, and now we're all looking at each other from Brazil to the United States to Canada to the Middle East to, to China going, what do we do? What do we do? Um, and there are many different answers or there are two different answers. And the one answer is go back, go back. We need to we need to make it great again. The other answer is we need to go forward. And everyone's like, but we'll, to what? To what? And we don't know yet. And that's where the last chapter of my book tries to engage in some prognostication of what we could make if we don't destroy the planet first. Is it just that we don't value? Um, human ingenuity enough and and just in mass humans in general look for a strong leader to just deal with all that stuff so i can hunt and gather i think that we are fear-based and short-term thinkers as humans and i think that as such it's hard for us to create ingenuity at this point in our system that we have now. We are, we are part of our system. We are cogs in that wheel. It is hard for us to create ingenuity that serves the whole. So when an amazing satellite is created, right, or some new technology is created, it is in service to and built with capital by a state or a corporation of some kind. Thus, that power, that technological power is monopolized by that group. And people who want a part of it have to pay or have to give something up. They have to sacrifice something. That is in service to the larger power, that innovation. Now, there are all kinds of tiny innovations happening all over the planet where people are deciding to opt out of patriarchal systems. They're bartering with one another. I'll cook you dinner if you take my kid to school. I'm going to have a vegetable garden in my backyard so that I don't have to go through the, the factory farming. I'm going to not get married because I don't want to be trapped in this kind of a cycle. I'm going to decide that I'm not going to follow the binary sexuality because I don't identify with that. And society is now allowing people to make those choices in a way that they never could before. When I was growing up in the 70s, coming out as gay or shacking up with your boyfriend, I mean, these were things that in my Roman Catholic upbringing were untenable. And now they're normal. <laughs> very quickly, they've become very normal. And that's destabilizing for those people who are running this social show. And it's, yet it's those choices and there are choices being made where people are valuing ingenuity that's not high-stakes technology, but little, little hacks here and there that are changing the fabric of our society from the bottom up. And that's where I'm looking in today's society. Those are the things that happened in ancient Egypt during the in-between times. That's when you, you saw people 
engaging in a different way of of distributing power, but then they would they would go away. Um, they would quickly be wrapped up when the next strongman came along and things centralized again. I think that this time it's going to be hard for a re-centralization. And you can see the United States has never been more divided. And you could argue that we really do run things decentralized state by state almost. My California existence is very different from somebody's Alabama existence. And that reality will go forward more and more as we decide in a, in a more local way how to move forward with the reality we want. Um, it's, it's a very interesting time to be alive. It's like we're going through an Egyptian intermediate period, what a, what a historian would call an intermediate period between um, time periods of, of great centralization, between my good kings. My guest is uh, author Kara Cooney, professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA and the author of The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. Uh, We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, 
Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Quiplet Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital... go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom It's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company. And then ask for the gift card number over the phone. 
Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. It'd be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov AG for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I would like to take you to the opera where you are going to hear a Mozart opera, which is nothing but an opera written by Mozart. (laughs) This is an opera in one act, and it begins when the curtain rises. Otherwise, you couldn't see a thing. The stage setting is a kind of a forest. There are two large trees, which of course indicates the forest. It's a kind of a small forest, but it's a forest. (laughs) First, the tenor comes in. He is supposed to meet his soprano, as they usually call those ladies. But she is a little late this particular season, so he hides himself behind one of the trees in order to surprise her when she comes in a little later, which she does. When she arrived, she can't find him because he is occupied behind one of the trees. Uh, he's with a knife carving her name into the scenery. Now, she doesn't know that he is there, but, uh, well, as a matter of fact, she must know it because she saw it doing rehearsals. Either she pretends that she doesn't know it, or she's just plain stupid. (laughs) Or whatever it is, she gets across the stage somehow and takes place behind the other tree, which, for the occasion, hides her. (laughs) To a certain extent. Now, The chorus comes in, but nobody knows why, except Mozart, and he is dead. (laughs) And that's just too bad. Next, your father comes in, and he is a very old man, primarily because she is a very old soprano. (laughs) And he is very angry because apparently she is not his daughter. Now, this has nothing to do with the opera. I found that out myself. (laughs) And that's what we call research. (laughs) Anyway, he decides that he has had enough of her, so he tells her to die, and that's exactly what she's going to do. And with that, the opera ends, and people can go home. Now I take you to the opera house where you hear the conductor's footsteps when he enters the orchestra pit. Here he comes. Yeah, he walks sideways. <laughs> and this is the overture. 
This, ladies and gentlemen, was the first part of the overture. Now you hear the second part, and that's exactly the same. Now this little bloop is an extra bloop. We have in case we shoot one shot of bloops. But that has never happened, so we have a lot of bloops left over. Now the curtain rises and the tenor arrives. He's a little tall fellow, he comes in. He comes in from the left in a single file. He goes behind the tree right away. the leading lady arrives she is supposed to fill the part of the soprano now, she not only fills it she overflows it a little bit. she's a big husk a big uh, uh, she's a big soprano that's what she is she's what we call a messy soprano she comes in in a single pile Also arrives backwards, but nobody notices the difference. <laughs> she goes behind the other tree. She can hardly wait because uh, see, she is. She supposedly hasn't, she hasn't met him for a long time, so she is just, she's anxious. Now is the time for the chorus. The light is dimmed, so you can hardly see these people when they arrive, and that's why they're dressed in a kind of cheap underwear. <laughs> because there is no reason to spend a lot of money for costumes when you can't see them. Right? And that's the way the, way the management of this theater feels about it, and that's the way it's gonna be. Here they come. Bread and butter. Now they're all in and they fool around in the dark for a little while. This is a mixed chorus. Bread and butter. Now they're out, they get the money and go home. Next, a baritone comes in and sings, Toreador, Toreador. But he finds out that he's in the wrong opera. Now, the father comes in, the old man, and he is the basso.
almost now told her what he had to say and she understands him quite well so now she prepares herself to die but before she dies she sings an area the so-called die area <laughs> She seems very happy about it. She dies by stabbing herself between the two big trees. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Boy, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program, and definitely a uh, <clears throat> Monday uh, <laughs> collides with live music uh, or uh, live radio on a uh, Monday edition of the Tom Sumner Program. There's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, and let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room, but I'll be back tomorrow, hopefully with an all-new edition of the Tom Sumner Program. We had to put a lot of substitutes in today. Um, Actually, what happened is all three guests were booked by the same publicist who got sick and didn't confirm. We got it all sorted out, and we're rescheduling. But tune in tomorrow. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.